They say that every army marches on its stomach. Well, in this episode of The Reenactor's Corner, we're going to meet a Soviet World War II reenactor whose passion is recreating a 1940s period field kitchen, complete with authentic recipes to match. Plus, we'll also talk about what effect the unfolding conflict in Ukraine could have on the hobby. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great. How are you, Chris? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm excited to record this episode. We haven't had a guest on the show for a while, um, so let's just jump into it. Um, Dylan Williams, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, no. Thanks for having me, guys. Been uh, been kind of a life goal to get on ever since I started listening. <laughs> Excellent. Pleasure to have you, dude. So for people who don't know you, why don't you kind of give a little bit of an introduction and talk about what you do in World War II reenacting? Sure, sure. So I'm a reenactor uh, out here in the Midwest, the uh, the corn regions, as it were. Uh, and I do, honestly, entirely too much. Um, <laughs> my main thing is Soviet, because uh, my brother and my father both do that. Um, but I've, I mean, I've branched out in so many things. I do, um, we're building some Bulgarian stuff, um, World War II Bulgarian stuff. Uh, there's an interest in some French stuff to continue off of, um, a few of my friends and I's interest in World War One French, uh, just too much. And then the stuff I used to do is just, uh, just too much. So, uh, if you, if you're that guy who sees me changing uniforms like three times at an event in the Midwest, that's probably me. <laughs> It's okay, man. No shame. No shame. I've been like that before, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dylan, how did you get interested in World War II, and how did you get started in World War II reenacting? Well, really, it was uh, just events, going to events, you know, as a, whatever, 13-year-old, uh, you know, a cheap vacation for my family was to go up to, there's a big event in Rockford, Illinois. It's one of the biggest in the country. Uh, so that would really just be our family vacation for, you know, the fall uh, we'd go up there, we'd get a hotel, and we'd stay and go to the event for all weekend. And just from there, being a natural uh, history person, you know, when we got cable, I wasn't excited about Cartoon Network. I was excited about we had the History Channel, finally. Um, I relate to that. Yeah, I relate <laughs> to that. <laughs> so really, it was just kind of a natural fit. You know, I've been reading about World War II, uh, really, since I could start reading. Uh, and it was just a natural fit. You know, it's seeing people trying to emulate the lived experience of the people who fought in the second world war. It was just like, I was, I was hooked. You know, the first event I went to, I was like, I don't care. I'm like, I don't care if I got to wait like four more years before the regs say I can join. I'm doing this. I got to do this. Um, and actually I fell in with an, a British unit first. The first thing I did was British. Um, and I met them at Rockford. Uh, and even though I don't do British anymore, they're still very good friends of mine. I, you know, make sure to get over to their camp whenever I can at events, whenever I can see them. That's cool, cool dude. That's awesome. Um, now, you got into reenacting. Your your twin brother also does World War II reenacting. Correct. Yeah, my brother, Zach, uh, he also uh, is a reenactor. And really, he's the one who got me to kind of sit down and, <laughs> and focus on Soviet because... You know, again, I like my people who did British, but it was like, man, I want to hang out with my brother. 
you know, uh, you know, nobody knows me than my brother. I want to go hang out with him. Uh, so really, he got me into that, and he is just a monster uh, in terms of uh, research and everything for Soviet. I mean, he's actually been published. Uh, so I really try to soak up as much as I can from him, and reenacting with him really helps that. That's cool, man. That's really cool. I'm going to try to get him on as a guest uh, for a future episode. I'd love to talk to him about his research into the Soviet side. Yeah, we oh, need the dual, Will- the dual Williamses, you know? You better <laughs> set aside like four hours. That's going to be like, it's going to be a, a three-parter episode. Oh, jeez. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'm sure that'll sell. <laughs> so since we're talking about Soviet stuff, this is the first episode that we have recorded since the the big news topic mm. of the day, the invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine by Russian armored forces. Um, this is affecting everybody, and I think this is going to have a big effect. It's going to have a, an effect on World War II reenacting, whether it's big or small remains to be seen. Uh, but let's talk about that. Ben, what, what, what do you think about this? Well, I mean, as it is, I've already been personally affected by the war in a weird roundabout way, and that... As many of you know, I sell militaria, I sell reproduction stuff on the side as a sort of side hustle, and some of my business contacts are in Russia, in St. Petersburg. And I have been... my th- Their Facebook is now shut down because of this conflict, and honestly, I'm not sure if I can s- still send them money on PayPal. Um, so that leaves me in a sort of weird limbo on what to do um and i i got a box from st petersburg i think like last weekend and i don't expect to get any more parcels from russia in a damn long time um and so that's really wild to me also just like saying the name of a new war like the russia the russo-ukrainian war they're calling it it just it seems weird it seems like it's wild that these things are still happening, you know, a conflict on this scale of this magnitude in that region, which uh, is an area of study for us all. Like, these things aren't consigned to history textbooks. They can still happen, and they are. Dylan, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, at least in terms of uh, Soviet reenacting, I know this will have uh, absolutely disastrous consequences. Uh, which, of course, is somewhat weird to say given the actual, you know, suffering going on. But just in terms of our hobby, um, for those that don't know, the big three for Soviet are suppliers, I should say, are Voin in the Ukraine, uh, Schuster in uh, Belarus, and then Voinspets in Russia. Of course, all three of those countries are involved in one way or another uh, in this current conflict. Uh, so... Uh, we've heard some rumblings that the the Belarusian and Russian postal services are still shipping, albeit at a reduced capacity. Um, but really, nobody knows, in terms of, again, that one uh, aspect of our hobby, how it's going to shake out. Uh, but we can only, you know, hope this ends and hope, you know, everybody can get back to business because those three companies have really done a lot to make uh, Soviet reenacting uh, you know, as possible it is, as as it is, as as good looking as it is, as authentic as it is, uh, and the loss yeah. of any of them will be just a just absolute disaster, an unfortunate casualty of the conflict. Yeah, I mean, Voin is located in Zaprodizha, Dizia. I I can't for the life of me pronounce the name of the city there. Oh no, <laughs> it's the place where that giant nuclear power plant is, and. Uh, 
it's kind of unclear what's going to happen. Like there's fighting going on by this giant nuclear power plant. And yeah, that's that scary to think of. sound like it's going to end well. I hope it does, but yeah. Yeah, we had actually heard from uh, some of the people at Voin saying that they were actually going to try to get back into their workshop. Uh, I believe that was Wednesday, so about two days ago from the time of recording. And uh, then, of course, that drops where, you know, uh, the Russians are supposedly shelling a nuclear power plant where it's just like, you know, it's... So who knows? Everything changes by the day. You know, you know, Francis Fukuyama and the end of history was wrong. Uh, that's mm-hmm. for absolutely sure. You know, I feel a lot of people are saying the kind of post-Cold War era is over, which is kind of hard to say. Who knows when you're living through an era, but it definitely feels like uh, some big changes are on the horizon. Sure, totally. I honestly think that as sort of students of history, when you can watch a documentary on the Battle of Normandy or the Battle of Stalingrad or something that's an hour long. We forget that historical events, you know, play out over years. I think we have a sort of sense of compressed time when looking at history. And so we're already... We, I think some people are thinking that this war is going to be... is going to end very soon, and it may well be. But this thing also may drag on over months and years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... I mean, it, it's really it's really strange seeing conventional war happen like this again. And I'm not really a you know, sort of great military expert, but in my lifetime, I feel like I've only seen wars that have been either very lopsided, where a superpower rolls over some sort of two-bit warlord, or endless insurgency. And so it's interesting seeing a conflict which is conventional and which is, you know, both sides have are more or less equally matched with tanks and planes and whatnot. A lot of the cases, uh, the the same planes and tanks and whatnot, you know, both being post-Soviet countries. Yeah, big time. Dylan, you mentioned the Postal Service still operating, and it's possible that by the time this episode airs, we'll have some more clarity on that. But right now, it really is in this state of limbo because I guess the official line is, is that you can go to a post office in Russia and mail something to the United States. But the big question is, will you ever get that thing? Won't they try to send it through India, I I saw? I could be totally off on that. So correct me, Chris or Dylan, if I'm wrong. Well, I'm not sure they really know. Yeah, that's the thing. I know during COVID, they actually routed a lot of their stuff through France. Uh, Russia did, Mm. the Russian Post. Mm. Mm. But given the circumstances, you know, a pandemic versus, uh, you know, a, a military invasion that they may not be as, uh, as helpful in that regard. So it's, uh, it's hard to tell, you know, uh, maybe even now Russia, the post is, you know, if everything I order from Russia, I expect it about three months down the line. So I don't order, you know, <laughs> great coats in, in February. Cause I know it'll probably get there in time for spring. Yeah, that's how it always goes. That's how mm-hmm. it always goes. It always mm-hmm. gets there as soon as it gets warm, you know, or as soon as the season for it is over. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah. we got bigger fish to fry now. Yeah, no, unfortunately. And I guess the person I heard it from uh, that the Postal Service was working was actually a vendor in Russia who uh, deals in photographs. Uh, you probably know the one I'm talking about, Ben, the, the big eBay seller. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I think I know. Yeah. He sent me an email uh so he's saying, like, hey, guys, you know, we'll get to, we'll get you your stuff as soon as we can. They're delaying flights. So there's only a couple flights going out per week or something like that, international postal Jeez. flights. Uh, so, again, it's very interesting to say um, I have heard from 
uh, sellers of Belarusian products, Schuster's, that supposedly Belarusian Postal Service isn't under any sanctions currently. Hmm. Um, but again, who knows how much of that is marketing, how much of that is optimism. So it's it's hard to say, especially this early on. And um, like you touched on, you know, history takes time. And, you know, I think everybody expected this thing to kind of be over in a few weeks or kind of like the insurgencies before that the U.S. fought kind of fade into the background. Um, but yeah. uh, definitely not the case. So interesting yeah. times. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And then, of course, you, there's the question where even if they can ship something to you, are there going to be limitations for us sending money there? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I don't know. I've heard, uh, what is it, uh, what's that, what starts with an S, Sprint or something? No, 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 Chris, Dylan, help Swift. me. Swift, that's Swift. it, that's it, that's Oh, it. the banking system. Yeah. Or it, like, yeah. processes credit cards, I, I believe. I, I watched a YouTube video, so I'm an expert now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't want to seem like I'm I'm some sort of grand expert on it, but I hear it's very hard for people in Russia to withdraw, you know, foreign money from ATMs. Mm-hmm. The ruble is in weird mm-hmm. freefall. I know there were tourists have other things to worry about on some level yeah. too. Like yeah. honestly, I have to say that the business of selling military seems really really inconsequential and meaningless when there's a war and suffering going on like in the area where the stuff comes from. Mhm. I, I want to mention also for our listeners or people who don't really buy a lot of stuff online, this affects not just Soviet reenacting too. I mean a lot of uh people buy stuff for World War II German from Schuster's or from other suppliers in Russia, that place, that guy, uh, Zella 39 or whatever, who makes the high quality Mm -hmm. uh, leather and canvas goods. He's located in uh, Russia. And I mean, I've over the years bought so, so much stuff that I use for reenacting from the former Soviet Union and from Ukraine and from Russia specifically as well. Yeah, and uh, it's not even just, you know, full uniforms, it's fabrics, too. Um, What is it, the Leningrad tailor, I know he gets his material, uh, he makes uniforms domestically in in the United States, but he gets his material, or some of it, from uh, St. Petersburg. And so that supply has been cut off, and I did see he made a social media post about it. So, yeah. Something else I wanted to talk about was like the whole social aspect or sociocultural aspect of how World War II reenacting is regarded or is going to be regarded in light of this current real life conflict. I mean, I said before that, you know, I I think I've always been sort of fascinated, even you could say morbidly fascinated by war. But just growing up in a sort of Cold War and then global war and terror era, I thought that conventional war was sort of safe in the past and when you can beam images of you know carnage into your bedroom like also in the past wars have been presented to the public by curated but uh, biased media sources and now you can just get these sort of raw uncut images of carnage beamed into your cozy bedroom on Mm -hmm. like tiktok um which is really strange and disconcerting in a number of ways Dylan, what's your sense on how Soviet reenactors feel about this or how Soviet reenacting is going to be perceived in light of all of this? Well, I can speak from personal, kind of within our our unit and our kind of circles, is that um, I think we can all kind of make the distinction that, say, that the invasion is, uh, it's not the Soviet state doing it. You know, the Soviet Union ended in 91, 
Um, and this is has nothing really to do with uh, the history we like to portray, the history we like to talk to people about. You know, we focus on, you know, the Great Patriotic War, something that happened, um, you know, 80 years ago at this point. So I think, at least within our circle, we know that, hey, this, on a surface level, doesn't really have much to do aside from, you know, both people formerly being in the same country together. Um, but unfortunately, I feel for the wider um, reenacting scene at large, I i don't know, I haven't personally seen anything yet, but I do have legitimate fears that this will, uh, you know, Soviet reenactors won't be as welcome, um, which of course is something we were trying to kind of deal with. Again, a lot of, when we came into the scene, um, we've really worked with a lot of local event people to really show them like, hey guys, we're not like rabid commies, we're just historians who have an interest in Soviet history, we want to tell the suffering, the 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 usual the boilerplate speech we give you know the sacrifices of the soviet people um and that was in some aspects has been an uphill battle just to even kind of get that you know kind of getting rid of that cold war mentality um that a lot of these people had and uh i can really fear that this is going to set us back uh in that regard you know even more it's like oh those evil russians are here um, which of course, and obviously we don't condone the invasion, but what we portray is 80 years before it has nothing to do with it. Um, sure. Sure. so, so I, that's kind of my fear is that kind of that, per lack of a better term, I guess, xenophobia will win out and Soviet reenacting will be kind of back where it was, you know, in the late two thousands where it was just kind of looked at this kind of kooky, uh, tanky kind of thing, uh, to use a internet phrase, <laughs> Um, but I don't know. Like I said, I haven't seen anything. That's just my I think my pessimism talking. Um, but we'll certainly find out. The reenacting season, uh, at least here in the Midwest, generally starts around April. Um, so and usually goes till about September. Usually we have at least a couple events a month. Of course, stuff is coming back from COVID too. So uh, I'm hoping that people know us. People know that you know we're just here to you know have some fun do some theme camping and do some public speaking. At least that's what I'm in it for. <laughs> um, so hopefully we'll see. But again, I, my, my predictions are negative uh, to, to be pessimistic, I suppose. Well, there's an unfortunate historical precedent where people sort of gang up in times of war and become irrational. Like in World War I, uh, it's, it's said that people would beat dachshunds to death because their association with Germany. Mm -hmm. And in World War II, obviously, you had Japanese Americans being placed into internment camps. And even, you know, sort of in the early 2000s, you had uh, Freedom Fries. And uh, I think... We think we think of ourselves as being rational and past that, but unfortunately, I've already heard some reports of, you know, Russian businesses being threatened mm -hmm. or people not even with Russian last names, but with just like Eastern European sounding last names, uh, you know, being menaced or threatened for no reason. Um, and so, yeah, I just it's it's disheartening. Um, it is to see this sort of mob mentality. Well, I think that it's, you know, reasonable to worry. I think, I don't think any of us are being overly alarmist here. Um, but like, like Dylan said, time will tell. Let's talk about something a little more lighthearted. I know, Dylan, you were involved, have been involved in uh, cooking at events on like kind of a large scale. Um, what's, how did you get involved in doing that? 
Uh, well, at first, there was really nobody else who wanted to do it. Um, <laughs> um, just from my own experience, I'm not really the biggest fan of uh, kind of tacticals, you know, go around, shooty shoot, uh, or where, where they're dressed up now as immersion events. It's like, eh, not my thing. But um, being able to cook, because one, one, I just enjoy cooking in general. You know, I'm uh, not a great cook, but I definitely like, you know, I know how to feed myself, all that. Um, and also I figured, too, it would be a really good way to get into sort of the cultural history because, of course, food is culture. Um, and even, you know, the wartime recipes we found, uh, as adulterate as they might be due to lack of supply or imports of uh, American Lend-Lease food or British Lend-Lease, what have you, uh, they were still had a very Slavic, Russian kind of uh, attitude behind them. Um and that was lecture. That was really a lot of fun. It was we did uh, my me and my um, it was myself and another gentleman. We did a lot of the research coming up with original recipes that we could try to follow as close as we could. Because really, the first thing we realized is that cooking in bulk for a lot of people is actually kind of difficult. <laughs> um, sure. You know, we had initial plans. There was going to be uh, you were at the event, Ben, at Smolensk, where we were going to have. Uh, three course meals or like we're going to do like four meals a day. We're going to have a snack. Incredible dude. (laughs) That's ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. We were going to have, you know, people running out, bringing fresh coffee and tea to everybody. We were going to bake sweets. And then we kind of, uh, we went to a work day and uh, we built kind of our cooking area. We flattened it, built a pit. And then we realized, Oh, we have like one fire. And that's it. <laughs> so we really kind of really cut everything to very simple soups. Uh, we made a very simple summer salad that was actually very popular. I had people messaging me after the event saying, hey, what's the recipe for that, that salad you guys made? Uh, which is I really... Mean, oh, sorry, I still ahead. think you guys did a bang-up job. Um, I, I just remember my personal experience. I got to the event um, Friday afternoon and... Uh, immediately sort of reported um i was given soup uh at your uh field field kitchen station um i think the meat soup had been consumed but there was a vegetarian option which uh which uh i graciously took and oh we we made sure you got extra ben don't worry (laughs) thank you sir (laughs) and then your brother took me out to uh our fighting position but uh I was I was impressed. Like in the morning, there was oatmeal, and that was very good. And uh, what was the, I think you're the only like, one who thought that. We actually ended up throwing most of the oatmeal away. Nobody maybe, look, nobody wanted to eat it. Starving. <laughs> oh sure. I thought we'd yeah. get more people just like, hey, I'm I'm hungry. Let me just eat this. But like nobody wanted the oatmeal. Yeah, I, I thought it was fine. I think it was, they put some sugar in it, and there was like that sweet bread or something. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Am I am I am I remembering that wrong? Uh, no, yeah, one of our uh, unit mothers, his uh, unit members, his mother makes uh, a lot of bread, and he brought this sweet bread that was oh my god, we couldn't uh, we couldn't keep it in stock. Everybody was just coming back for more. It was it was really good, and uh, he's going to be making some more at the event next month as well. So oh, that's great. Get prepped for that. But even during the sort of uh, the action that took place all of Saturday day, I remember um, we were sort of we were. We were pretty strung out from fighting. We were very tired, and uh, we couldn't get relief uh, because of you know the the realities of the tactical. Mm-hmm. But what we could get was coffee, and so we sent a runner back to uh, 
the, the field kitchen, and not five minutes later, there was a Soviet, um, their, your equivalent of an Essentrager, a, a food carrier, mm-hmm. uh, full of hot coffee. And that just kept this going um, for, you know, the remainder of the afternoon fighting. And that was really great. So, and then you got you got you a dinner in the in the evening. So, I think you guys did a bang up job. I mean, even if the ambitions couldn't quite be met, um, I still was. I, I felt like I was fed throughout the event. So, oh, well, thank, feedback. You. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank uh, you. And that was popular too. We definitely. I mean, if one thing I'm going to change is I'm actually going to bring more kettles because I brought I own three. I bought all, brought all three. And I think they were going pretty much the whole time. So I'm actually going to make sure I bring more because everybody, you know, if you can't have time to, to make some food, the very least you can get some coffee. So uh, definitely going to be have even more this time at the next event. Yeah, that sounds great, dude. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> Dylan, um, how many people were you cooking for at that event? Oh, God, it was probably... I'm trying to remember the registration. My brother ran the registration. He kept telling me, Dylan, you got to make a food for this many people, blah, blah, blah. Um, if I had to guess, and this is a rough guess, so don't, uh, I'm not tooting my own horn. I think it was probably about 35, 40 people. That's um, cool. And we did That's... three meals. Or, yes, uh, well, we did, or four meals, I, I'm sorry. I thought it was more than that. I thought it was up uh, up, up over like 60, 70, no? I honestly, I don't remember. I couldn't tell you, but I mean, honestly, like I said, how it actually kind of came together was once we kind of figured out our method, everything kind of just became a blur. It's like, hey, you know, it's three hours before we said we're going to eat. We know it takes about three hours to make a meal for 35, 40, 60, 70, however many it was. Um, And I was happy to I was happy to say that every time, despite the amount of people that may have been there, we had leftovers uh, after every meal, especially the breakfast, but that was just because nobody wanted oatmeal. <laughs> I like the oatmeal. I'm I'm going to be a contrarian here. <laughs> okay. Oh, always, uh, always. <laughs> I think that that's really realistic, and in many ways, probably was more common than someone making a meal for four or ten people. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the military, these armies in World War II were large scale formations and they had to be fed a company at a time, you know, a hundred guys lining mm-hmm. up to get food or, um, you know, people showing up with food containers to bring food to the front lines or whatever it was. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you faced with making that quantity of food for so many people? The big thing was really just trying to figure out how much we would need, like how much, you know, how many potatoes, how many onions, how many, how much beef. Um, And to really to get that kind of zoned in, we actually um, made a lot of these recipes in a smaller scale before the event. So um, on, I believe it was Friday night, I believe the dinner was like a beef and barley kind of soup, uh, which actually turned out very well for being made in the field. But, uh, what we did before is we actually made it a couple times just in our, you know, in our own daily lives, make dinner for us and our families. Uh, and then we was, okay, hey, uh, whatever, a pound of beef was good for six people. Okay, if we extrapolate that, say there's 60 registered, we'll assume the most. Then we can kind of go from there like, okay, we'll need X amount of beef, this many potatoes, this many onions. Um, but once we got that dialed in, like I said, we, we did pretty good. Uh, again, not to toot my own horn, but... Uh, I mean, we had leftovers after every meal. Every meal was done earlier than we anticipated. 
because um, we had done a little bit of cooking before, like for our unit at events, like, you know, maybe a dozen people, but it was the first time a lot of us, and there was a crew, I shouldn't say just say me, there was a crew of about five of us who uh, did all the cooking, and it was very much a, an equal effort, you know, we all pitched in for groceries and, and work and whatnot. Um, uh, but yeah, I was just trying to find out like what we need, um, how to cook it, how to make it. Uh, but really once we got there, it kind of just fell into place. Uh, we had a little table set up. We just started immediately. Once we got everything set up, we started mincing vegetables, getting coffee on. Uh, really the hardest part was just, um, disguising our Farby stuff. You know, of course, uh, we just kind of started this unit-wide cooking thing, so we had a lot of shortcuts in terms of like, okay, we're going to have to bring a cooler because there's perishables. We're going to have to uh, bring plastic jugs of water because we went through like probably 30 gallons of water just for cooking and cleaning and giving people water, that kind of stuff. Um, but really, in terms of the cooking, it wasn't too difficult, you know, in the recipes too, we it was a big part. We kept the recipes. It was just basically variations on chop all these vegetables up, put it in a pot with some form of protein, and boil it for two three hours. Um, I feel I feel like I heard somewhere that you were that you were going off of a like an authentic pre war Soviet army cookbook. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of our members, uh, he actually kind of pinched one of the recipes. The it wasn't the beef and barley that we actually took from a. Uh, a Russian cooking website. It was like a modern-ish recipe. Of course, it had the big, you know, the the poor uh, grandma's life story <laughs> in the before. Um, but yeah, I believe the the cabbage soup we made on Saturday was taken from an original Soviet uh, cooking manual, and we used uh, pretty much the same proportions, just scaled down slightly because that one was for like, like you said, Chris, like a company that was for. Uh, way more people than were at the event. So we actually, that one was, it was funny. We had to scale that one down. Whereas before, these other recipes, we were having to boost them by several magnitudes. Um, but cool. no, it was uh, fun. And uh, we've got even more research. Uh, one of our members has bought a couple of ones. And we're definitely going to go, um, all the recipes at the event next month will be from the, from that cookbook. Sounds great. So what are those recipes like? I mean, we haven't really talked about this on the podcast before. What kinds of meals did uh, Red Army soldiers have during World War II? Uh, it was a lot of what we would call soups. Um, a lot of stuff boiled uh, together, a lot of cabbage, a lot of root vegetables. Um, meat was obviously, due to the war, a lot less common than they would have liked. Uh, pre-war rations were generally much more meat filled, but, uh, wartime particularly, they really had to realize like, okay, what cooks up in bulk nicely? What is easily growable? Um, you know, what can we get as, you know, food supplies from the West, all that stuff. And, um, what we've noticed going through these manuals and going through these soldiers accounts is that it's a lot of cabbage. Hmm. Um, so a little warning, if you don't like cabbage, don't come to the event because, uh, it's going to be a lot of cabbage. <laughs> Bring your own food if you want. Um, but yes, it's very, uh, I guess what we in, my, in today's age would call bland food. It's a lot of boiled vegetables, um, uh, chicken stock, uh, or vegetable stocks made up of, you know, garlic, onions. A lot of onions, too, especially. Um, but really, it's at the core of it, it's very hearty, I don't quite want to say peasant, but peasant food. 
Um, and that's something we noticed even when we were cooking just for, you know, just for people in our unit, five, six people at, at public events and such. Um, it's very hearty. And that kind of philosophy, it's interesting because that really kind of ties into kind of the the Soviet, I guess, that's the word I'm looking for, kind of their philosophy, I guess, for equipment during the war is that it's, you know, and, and you know this, Ben, and, and Chris, you both have uh, kits in being or in, in partial being. It's very simple, you know, compared to the Soviet gear setup of one ammo pouch, a roller buckle belt, a canteen, and a shovel to the German, I don't even know the system, you need another dude to put it on you. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's rough and ready, but it's it's simple, it's easy, um, and, and at least in terms of the food, because I, I haven't had to eat my pouches yet, it's very filling. Um, um, I used to make a lot of, um, cabbage soups. I was house sitting last year for a a friend of mine in rural Indiana. And for some reason I decided I was going to eat nothing but boiled vegetables soups for, uh, a winter where I house sat my friend's house. And, uh, oh yeah, no, I was, I had a nail down to that. I was, I was making some damn good soups. Uh, I should make one actually. That was a, anyway, come uh, over dude. (laughs) Come on, dude. You're always welcome. Come get some soup, man. Sounds great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, very simple, very hearty. Um, and that really kind of translates to kind of the Soviet people in that era as well. Again, these were people who were under the czar, very agricultural. They'd only been freed from serfdom, quote unquote, freed, you know, 40 years prior to the fall of the czar. Um, so they're very much peasant stock. Uh, and that's reflected kind of in the gear, in the food, in the writing you see from people, because a lot of people were newly literate, so their their writings aren't maybe as quite as eloquent or as flowy as uh, maybe German or even American ones. Um, so it's just kind of interesting how that all ties back into the culture. Um, you know, again, culture is food, so it's it's very interesting how that comes back together. I think that kind of perspective is so valuable for living history and getting into the mindset of the people that we portray. Sure, a hundred percent. Like, yeah, it's 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 like another level, you know. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's, peel, it's peeling back an onion, <laughs> <laughs> which we will Format do a lot of. We will do a lot of at the <laughs> event. Believe me. Um, yep, I trust you on that, man. <laughs> uh, would you describe the food as being like palatable from the perspective of a twenty-first century American? I think it would take some adjustment, but I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, usually the only feedback uh, we had from people uh, who were complaining about the meals was that they just needed more salt. Um, so that's really the big thing. I think, you know, modern, not necessarily maybe even Americans, but I feel like modern people are used to having more kind of salty food, uh, which, I mean, I'm guilty of. I, you know, I, I, I pile it on whenever I can. Um but really, I think it would take some adjustments. I think a lot of people would balk at the lack of meat, uh, kind of a meat entree, or the fact mm-hmm. that soup is the entree. Um, I know, like some people, like my my actually my dad doesn't quite like soup as an entree. It's like it's not an entree; it's it's a side. <laughs> um, but I think beyond that, once they've sat down and tried it and realized, like, oh hey, these flavors go well together. Because I mean, you put onion. You boil an onion with uh, some carrots and some potatoes or even some cabbage for a couple hours. The, the flavors work very well. Uh, and I'm not like a culinary expert, but, you know, I know what goes well together. And a lot of the stuff that I see in, in Russian cooking just works together. You know, grains and, and grains and uh, some sort of sweetener, 
tea and honey, all that kind of stuff. So I think it would be, I think it'd take a little bit of adjustment, but I think the average person could definitely learn to appreciate, uh, you know, cooking of that era. Well, I'll say this, as a participant of the event who was able to sort of enjoy the fruits of your labor, everything tastes better when you're starving and hungry, <laughs> and maybe the food was bad and I was just hungry, but it did, it did <laughs> taste very good. And we were also in action for a lot of the event, um, like running around, and uh, whenever there was food to be had, it was nutritious and it hit the spot, uh, and it, 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 it was, I, I, I found it palatable. Um, I think also it's just, it's, it's, it's almost easier to consume soups, you know, you just need a, Mm -hmm. you just need a spoon. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so. Well, Soviet soldiers were not issued a fork in the field. Is that true? I think it is. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just know that, uh, I just know that, you know, there's the sort of ubiquitous soviet soldiers spoon there were a couple different variations you sometimes see them like tucked into a you know a a boot or a putty or something Mm -hmm. Um, but it's sort of very iconic of the of the soviet soldier in the second world war oh absolutely like i said you'll have to have my brother on to correct all the mistakes i make but i believe pre-war there was a fork issued but that was cut uh once the war started but don't quote me on that one (laughs) we gotta get zach on here then we will Mm -hmm. Um, Dylan, you mentioned sort of having to hide modern stuff that was a, a necessity for you to do your role. And I think that's really kind of interesting because I know there are a lot of people who are, are might be imagining themselves going to an event or maybe they do events and they, they're like really proud of only having totally authentic stuff and only having what you can carry. But the reality is, is that armies supplied their soldiers every day and for the people in those supply roles whether it's just somebody who's worried about creating accommodations or lodging for his group of 10 people or you know cooking for a large number of people or some other supply role the amount of stuff that you have to have the amount of supplies the logistics that goes into that it like exponentially increases as the scale increases so um I'll say this too the the event that Dylan was talking about that he cooked at last year was also in the it was in July it was in the heat of the summer you know so that mm-hmm. added another challenge I'm sure mostly um, of us staying know, dressed there were the the only big complaint was that they said we were in our underwear too much I'm like it's too hot <laughs> it was the appropriate Soviet underwear but we were in our underwear most of the time <laughs> wow yeah I remember I remember seeing that yeah that's funny Ugh. and of course. One could make the claim, I think, that there are period-correct workarounds to almost everything. But something like a cooler, um, I mean, I I don't know what they had in World War II, whether they had refrigerated trucks or if if they were slaughtering the stuff fresh on site. I mean, these things become basically unattainable from a reenactment perspective. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And and that's the thing, too, is, you know, obviously we want to try to improve, but, uh, you know, for the people who can bring all their own stuff that's original or period, you know, God bless you. But when we're trying to cook for anywhere from 30 to 60 people, depending on if myself or Ben is correct, uh, you know, we got to make some sacrifices. And of course, you know, we didn't leave. We tried not to leave stuff in the open. Uh, we had tarps to cover everything. But uh, you're right, Chris. Yeah, we can't really slaughter a cow. 
uh, on the battlefield. Although we did actually once have lamb. Uh, somebody brought in a live, uh, not a live lamb, uh, a lamb, and we cooked it at an event. But that was that wow. was years ago. That sounds pretty good. Oh yeah, I sucked out the eyeball, and uh, all everybody was horrified. It was great. <laughs> it was very crunchy, oh <laughs> right oh, from the skull. Wow. Um, but yeah, so it's something we are trying to improve on. You know, we're buying uh, water containers that they're not metal, but they're you know they're plastic. They you know pass the the dreaded fifteen foot rule. Um, you know, reducing the amount of plastics, prepackaging our stuff. Um, but really the first event was the first time, or I'm sorry, the, the last event was the first time we had done anything like this. Um, and really just, it was kind of a learning experience, even as we, even if it went particularly well, it was just kind of us learning like, okay, here's what we can condense on. Here's what we can try to do better next time. Um, and we've made some improvements, but I mean, there's always going to be, you know, I won't lie to you. There's going to be a jar of, uh, of pickles sticking out with the label still on just cause we need to see what it is. Um, but again, it's sure. a process just so everybody sure. can get fed. Yeah. There's, there's always authenticity compromises in everything that everybody does, no matter how realistic you, you want things to be, there have to be judgment calls. And I, I kind of like the idea of, um, sort of this, like, sliding scale of authenticity where the actual thing that they might have had, which was some kind of, I don't know, a, a train with, with water on it or something, you know, mm-hmm. that you're not going to be able to recreate. Um, and then the, the sort of the easy and fast way, which I've done many times, is to have uh, modern one-gallon jugs of water from the supermarket under a tarp that's tucked out of sight and someone mm-hmm. goes to fetch the water, you know. And then there's there's plastic containers or metal containers that maybe aren't exactly the same as what they would have had, but they look, you know, they blend in better than something from the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, figuring out those things and and navigating that is part of the fun of of taking on these ambitious projects. And frankly, cooking for people in that volume in a field setting over an open fire is very ambitious. Yeah, I agree. What about the pots and pans and stuff, Dylan? Um, I mean, you're not going to be able to feed even 30 people out of one regular stock pot. What kind of equipment did you guys have to get to do this? That was actually one of the easier things. Um, we've been very lucky to have, oh, it wasn't just myself, there was about five of us, and we all had between us a pretty big stock pot. Um, but the Eater managed to look pretty roughly period appropriate. You know, you get it in a fire, you get some carbon scoring on it, it would look fine. Um, we had that, and we also had a, um, uh, remember like 10 years ago, the big craze was to fry your turkey for Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We we yeah, had one yeah. of those big turkey frying pots, which of course again stainless steel, but I mean this thing is you know 15 gallons wide, um, and it actually worked out. These pans are very wide, very deep, or we didn't really even need frying pans per se. Um, you know when we're we're frying up our uh, you know our our uh, aromatics, that's the fancy chef word. Uh, we could just do it literally in the bottom of the pot because the next step would to be just pouring all of our water put in some of our stock powder uh, anyway. So it was really nice to have that kind of just fall into place. You know, everything was just stock pots um, and ready to go nice and easy. Kettles, like I said, I'm a big fan of enamel uh, stuff. I have about three or four enamel kettles that I just brought along and completely destroyed. <laughs> uh, got them all dirty. Uh, but everything else was actually fairly easy to source. Um, 
you know, wooden spoons, aluminum spoons, uh, ladles, uh, little half things that aren't quite a ladle, but not quite a, a, a spoon. Uh, actually, the hardest thing to find was a knife. Um, we, for the life of us, we couldn't find a knife with like a wooden handle. It was all like, you know, carbon fiber, plastic handles. And it was just, it was just a weird thing. We just couldn't find it. Actually, I had to buy, it was a new old stock set of 70 steak knives that had a wood handle that, uh, <laughs> that did the job. What did you do with the other 69 knives? <laughs> uh, I think we, I think they're probably in my closet somewhere. All that, all that stuff's tech tucked away into a container or two in my closet. Um, but yeah, we literally bought a steak set just for to get one wood handle knife. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Dude. And it, it got, it got used. That thing was dull by the time we brought it back. Shoot. I totally relate to that. How things that you would think might be really easy to acquire, like a, uh, I found a period correct ladle to be really challenging to get. Um, you know, I finally found a nice enameled one in an antique store, but for a while we were using a stainless steel one just because it was the ladle that I could find. Yeah. Oh, exactly, yeah. And like I said, that we got pretty lucky, too. We found, at least by us, uh, antique stores always have aluminum ladles. Like, maybe mm. there was a big aluminum factory in the Midwest, but whenever I go to an antique store, I had to stop buying them after a while because I'd go into an antique store, I'd come back with a ladle, throw it on the other six ladles that we had. I feel like you could make an art project of that dude you know like you could just you could you could you could arrange them in some sort of a tasteful way you know right the people's ladle just come and gather at the people's table in the state aluminum uh. factory number six <laughs> what about cooking a giant pot of food over a fire you it's so i find it very hard to control the heat when you're cooking over a fire pit is that something where you feel like you kind of get a feel for it or does it really not matter that much because of the style of the food? Yes and no. Um, really the only direction for most of our stuff was there was a way to control it just by uh, kind of moving the potter. And we actually had uh, a member of our unit had a big piece of like, it's like chicken wire, but a much uh, bigger uh, gauge. It's almost like rebar that's been put into like a fence pattern. And he actually gave us, yeah, he gave us that, and we were able to put it over our fire pit, over some stones, and having the fire in the middle, uh, we were able to kind of modulate, you know, if you didn't want stuff to boil too quick, or if we got too ahead of ourselves, what actually did actually happen a couple times, we were like, oh crap, this will be done in 15 minutes, but dinner's not for another two hours. Um, What we would do is actually kind of just move it towards the corner, because it was a big, oh god, I don't know, maybe maybe four by four piece of this rebar fencing um, that we're able to stack all the kettles, all the, all the pots. Uh, Cause we did use two. We did one uh, was for our meat dishes. One was for our uh, vegetarian, which actually ended up being vegan just because we were just using vegetables um, dishes for, cause we had a couple of vegans who were there who actually next event will be even easier. Cause we're actually not planning on doing any meat dishes uh, next event. So it'll all be one pot for everybody. Uh, but yeah, but, um, but yeah, just by kind of move, adjusting the placement, adjusting how big the fire is, uh, we were really able to kind of modulate it, uh, be able to cook things a little bit slower, being able to sear some of the beef we had, uh, for the beef and barley soup on Friday. So a little bit, but yeah, overall it was kind of pretty much just need to be like an on off type of situation. Cause at the end of the day, all we were really doing was boiling water, uh, over a fire. 
What about cleaning the vessels in between meals? Um, that's, I think, a really tricky thing to do in a field situation, and it's a very tricky thing to do without um, modern, like, you know, scrubbing pads and mm-hmm. dish detergent. Um, what, what did you guys do? Uh, so we actually did cheat. We had a little uh, glass bottle that we put some Dawn in. So we did cheat on that, I won't lie, but it did make it a lot easier because um, we were able to really get everything nice and clean. Uh, again, you know, we don't want to have any bacteria hanging around from the previous meal. Uh, but we were actually, too, we found it was at a, um, like a, like a Harbor Freight, one of those types of stores. They had a big pack of these 100% cotton rags. It was like 500 rags for like 12 bucks. So we were just using those rags, just use them and lose them, use them like paper towels, you know. So we use a lot of those to clean, you know, I bundle a bunch up, dip it in some soapy water and just go to town. And then when we were done, we would just toss them out. You know, they're cotton, they'll they'll decompose. We're not littering too bad. Even on a much smaller scale, I think it's very important to bring some sort of a rag to an event to clean your mess tin. I used to try to maybe bring a, like a, like a, ultra period correct you know something in my something that i imagined was ultra period correct but the reality is cotton rags cotton rag they had those back exactly then. yep yeah uh the yeah. only thing that was hard to clean was the oatmeal that took me like an hour just to get that pot clean <laughs> oh, which of geez. course oatmeal's coming back again you know it's <laughs> so expect oh, kasha geez. expect kasha at the next event don't we're not you're not getting oatmeal well i'm fine with that at the last event that we did, we were cooking over a fire. It was really challenging, and mm. we did have some modern cleaning supplies in the form of modern uh, dish detergent and Absolutely. A, abrasive plastic scrubby pad thing. And um, what what that required was for someone to basically go off by themselves or for two people to go off and clean the stuff and use the modern gear. But at this event... We had very limited access to water. The temperature was below freezing. Mm. Without the modern supplies, I don't know how we would have gotten that stuff clean. Sometimes you have to cheat. I mean, exactly. It's it's, it's the straight up truth. Mm-hmm. No, and that's that's. Then we kind of worried about that at first too. It was like, oh god, they're gonna you know, they're gonna give us crap for you know having a modern you know plastic jug of water. But at the end of the day, when they want a cup of coffee, they don't care where the water that we're boiling is coming from, you know, <laughs> especially in that event where it was more like a tactical, Yeah, uh, people moving around. Yeah, overall, my experience of that, I was very impressed. Well, thank um, you. In the original instructions for maintaining your gear that the Wehrmacht issued, when they talk about cleaning the mess kit, they mention that a black layer will form inside your mess kit and that... Um, you shouldn't worry about it because it's not unhealthy and it doesn't interfere with the taste of the food. I have never seen a black layer form inside my mess kit. And I believe that the reason for that is because I clean it with an abrasive often. Mm, I think in the reality of war, those guys really had no way to clean that stuff. Sure. So every time you ate, I think there was some residue in there from the previous meal. But they, they also were probably eating out of these things on a daily basis, you know, so getting E. coli wasn't really that much of an issue, and right? Even if they did get E. coli, they were, like, fighting for their lives. They mm-hmm. were in, like, a literal individual existential struggle against, you know, thousands of people that were trying to kill them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it is interesting that I think I like, when I'm going to make a meal, I like to cook that meal in a clean pot. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Who doesn't? I mean, I think it's a sort of, it's a 
way of modern life, if you will, even if it's not a way of sort of the human experience going back centuries. But I'm imagining a, a you know a World War II cook looking, for example, into a field kitchen in a greasy kettle from the previous ham and noodle meal or whatever it was. And it's like, well, if there's bacteria in there, I'm going to boil it off. Mm. And it's, you know, that's more fat going into the next meal. That's more flavor. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like um, kind of the American perspective on it. Um, when I used to do British, I went to the the big Ohio event, Conneaut, and we got to eat with the Americans. Uh, and they had a pretty impressive field kitchen set up, which, of course, you know, speaks to America's kind of isolation and their industrial prowess. Again, it all goes back to culture and economics to an extent. But it was a big thing. It was literally just a boiling tub. It was three boiling tubs of, like, soap, water, and sanitizer. Hmm. Oh, that was, to my modern sensibilities of, you know, especially when that was early in my reenacting uh, experience, that was like, whoa, this is awesome. Why can't we have this at every event? Well, it turns out those things are, like, powered by gas and <laughs> all this stuff. It's like, well, that's why. <laughs> that's funny. That's really funny. Dylan, you are in the Midwest. You mentioned Conneaut just now. You mentioned uh, other events that you do in the Midwest. I have never really been to a reenactment in the Midwest with the, with the debatable uh, exception of the Stalingrad events that happened in Ohio. What is the reenactment scene like out there? I'm sure if we come down to brass tech, it's not entirely different from what you guys experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But just speaking from all the events I've been to, speaking from what what I personally like to do as a reenactor, it just seems to me that in the Midwest, there's more what we would call public events. Um, You know, where there's, you know, everybody sets up a camp, the public comes around, uh, they sell funnel cakes, all that good stuff. Um, That's actually really what I kind of grew up with you know when i was going to events before i was reenacting it was always public events because you know if i was a spectator i wouldn't have gone to a tactical um and that's really i've had some of the best conversations with public uh talking to them you know showing the soviet side of the war because i primarily do soviet when i'm doing these events um you know you just don't have that same kind of opportunity for public historical speaking that you get at tacticals which is honestly why i kind of prefer the public events and i feel that the midwest sort of caters to that i guess all midwesterners love a good fair uh which if you boil it down to i guess most public events are just world war ii renaissance fairs um (laughs) but i like that i like that analogy yeah in all honesty i'm okay with that you know uh as long as i can go in and set up a camp and have people come by and talk to them you know as long as we look good you know, everybody's looking, you know, pretty authentic. Uh, you know, I know people like to complain about public events, um, you know, being exactly that, you know, Renaissance fairs, but World War Two. But I feel as long as your stuff is good and you're having fun and you're, I guess, doing what you want to do for reenacting, God bless you. <laughs> and I feel like the Midwest kind of caters that. Now, I haven't been to any events on the East Coast, and I would definitely like to change that in the future, but... Um, that's just kind of my read on the situation. It seems like you guys are, uh, and don't take this wrongly, but I guess a little bit more serious. All the, the events are a little bit more private. Everybody's got some land. They can do things. I know you guys have your, your Zemlianka. You guys built and did partisan on the other week, which was very cool. Um, but that's just my kind of my, uh, bird's eye read on it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, don't don't be fooled by our internet posturing. You know, the, some of these events <laughs> might not be as serious as one might uh, think. Um, 
But what about what about COVID and the pandemic? How did that affect events for you guys out there? Oh, it was uh, it, it really shut things down for most of 2020 and at least the better part of 2021. We had a couple small ones we did um, with some some event sites that just kind of wanted like a. Um, what am I trying to say? Like, basically let the world know, like, hey, we're still here. We did a couple, like, basically private where they would film us giving our spiel and put it on their park website to let people know that they're still here. Um, but really, we haven't done much over these last, God, it'd be three years now. Jeez. Um, but thankfully, we're hoping that this, this uh, again, the reenacting season here really starts up around April, goes till about September. We're really hoping that a lot of stuff is going to be happening again. And... So far, we've been lucky. The only casualty, uh, at least here in the Midwest, has been a World War I event uh, that they do uh, up in Rockford, uh, which is a shame because I love World War I. I would only do World War I if the events were out there, but uh, so far, we've been pretty lucky. All the regulars seem to be back on schedule, which is about 10 to a dozen events um, for the season. So hopefully cool, all good. Man. Yeah. No, we definitely, we're, we're kind of spoiled for choice. We can... You know, we can definitely have some weekends where we're like, nah, I don't feel like going. <laughs> it, it's funny because, I mean, as, at, at, at the time of recording this, it's it's early March 2020. And it's 2022, Ben. I'm sorry 20, to break it to you. 2022. Oh, God, me. he's lost two years. <laughs> I've lost it. I've lost it. You're in for a bad time the next two years. <laughs> I hope your stocks are all right. Well, what I was going to say is uh, dating back to... 2020 <laughs> this time um it would have been next week uh was the last ohio stalingrad event and i feel like i kind of date things as being before ohio Stal the last ohio stalingrad and after the last ohio stalingrad because at that event the world kind of shut down in the pandemic and no, you're, you're absolutely sense. right yeah Dylan, what's your sense on like numbers overall in the hobby in your region? Do you think that the hobby World War II reenacting is growing or is it plateaued or what's your take? I definitely think the pandemic has kind of kneecapped it a little bit. But I mean, we would uh, just speaking from our own units experience, we would get at a minimum one or two people who were very interested in coming out um really per event and a lot of them actually funny enough were ethnic russians ukrainians who were really kind of delighted that we were doing what their grandfathers or great-grandfathers for some of them were doing um wow. so i can definitely That's say cool. soviet is growing um again of course pandemic kind of put a put the kibbutz on that just a little bit but i mean uh from what i've been able to see events uh every year until the pandemic were growing i started reenacting in 2014 um, have been growing, not shrinking. You know, every year there's a few more people. Every year the the event organizers got to figure out how to fit, you know, an extra camp of Germans or some extra Brits or whatever. Um, so I would say it's 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 growing at a healthy pace. I did, like I said, I've, I've said like four times because I I talk in circles. <laughs> uh, it's slowed down a bit, but I think now that hopefully, knock on wood, this is starting to get a little bit behind us. Uh, we're going to be able to see people come out again. People, you know see these things that's really where we do all of our recruiting we don't really do much on like people reaching out to us on facebook it's just people come to an event and we give them our recruiting info uh, and then we go from there so i'm really hoping that uh things can keep growing as they were before but it's definitely not shrunk i i personally don't believe
we'd take out some of our pictures from our events and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and you know they would say oh I, I don't remember who this was or I, and then we would say oh no no like th that's us a public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win it is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. So I, I always bring spare kit along and if, if somebody wanted to try, you know, joining the unit for the weekend and, and, and see what it's like, I, I, they would be more than welcome. We, we've always got the kit for that. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Dylan, thanks for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, no, guys, yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate Like I said, ever since I first heard this, I'm like, oh, I know these guys. I got to get on this podcast somehow. <laughs> also, thank you very much for supporting the podcast via Patreon. It really uh, helps us out and means a lot. So thanks for that. And I'm excited to have your uh, soup and kasha at the Rajev event next month. So, yeah. Well, thank you, guys. To everybody, thanks for listening. Also, if you would consider supporting the podcast via Patreon, it would be a, a big help because um, we're trying to get some more equipment and do some bigger and better stuff this year. And you can support the podcast for just uh, as little as a couple of dollars a month. And I think if you donate $5 a month, you get access to the bonus episode too. So um, you can get stuff. Also, this is just kind of a teaser, but I'm in the process of... Uh, screen printing some t-shirts so we're gonna have reenactors corner t-shirts coming hell soon. yeah i need that <laughs> free for the guests <laughs> yeah why not <laughs> well we'll see uh, anyway dylan thanks again uh it was great talking to you and i'm really glad uh, your perspective was great and i i've enjoyed this very much see you in the field see you guys soon hopefully see you in the field everybody We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how happy or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner. 